Support for this episode comes from Viator. Experiences are what people love the most about travel. That's why Viator has over 300,000 bookable experiences, so there's always something for everyone. They offer everything from simple tours to extreme adventures. Plus, Viator's travel experiences have millions of real traveler reviews, so you have the information you need to book the best activities for your trip. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. One app, over 300,000 travel experiences you'll remember. Do more with Viator. Not the result we wanted and the one we feared. Unfortunately, the Cincinnati Bengals get smoked at home by the Cleveland Browns. Their bitter rivals just got off to a god-awful start and never really uh, improved from there, so to speak. I'm Anthony Cazenza, joined by my colleague, John Sheeran. We're heading into the bye week, and I think everybody is recovering. John, uh, how are you? Yeah, man, it's such a tough loss. We had to push the show back a day, whole whole other <laughs> days, so people can recover. But it's Thursday. There's another game in ten days, or just just about, in a brand new city for the Bengals. Season's far from over. Season is far from over. I think optimistically, this record-wise, this is about where we all like kind of thought the Bengals could be. And and ironically, I know it, it seems a bit doom and gloom because of the past two losses. But I think a lot of folks thought, you know, they they maybe lost two that you figured they would win in terms of beating the Browns at home potentially and beating the Jets on the road. But they also won two games that not a lot of people expected and, and in dramatic fashion against the Steelers in Pittsburgh and against the Ravens in Baltimore. We're going to talk about the loss to the Browns. We're going to talk about a lot of different things, including where things are at in the midseason time for the Bengals, maybe some grades, that sort of thing. John has a very interesting stat of the week that we will also go through. So we've got a lot to get to, even though it is the bye week, no days off, no days off, but appreciate you joining us on a little bit different day and time. As John mentioned, we're, we're joining a Thursday evening. So hopefully all of, uh, all of you are, have been doing well on that extra day since our last, uh, since we usually Go live, but um, here, talking Bengals with you, and uh, that's that. So, you can get this show on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, all of the major audio platforms by subscribing to the Cincy Jungle Podcast channel, which also includes Orange is the New Black by Ace and Zim, and Coach Speak and Chalk Talk by Matt Minnick. You can uh, you can grab all of those by subscribing to the Cincy Jungle Podcast channel, and of course, subscribe to our channel on YouTube for these videos and many, many others that we do, a lot of different episodes throughout the week, including post-game shows and all kinds of things in between. So check us out and subscribe if you would. I don't really know where to begin with this game, John, and I, I guess I don't want to – I mean, I don't know. Maybe we can go really deep into the the weeds in terms of this play and that play and 
X's and O's. Um, I'm kind of now at the point where, you know, I'm a little more big picture with this thing, but I guess just kind of talking briefly about what transpired in the game, how it got to the point that it got to, uh, it seemed to me that the Bengals had a pretty good plan offensively in the first couple of drives. It's just that one pick six play uh, really doomed them. They never really seemed to be able to emotionally recover from that. And I mean, they were moving the ball, both, both those drives and, and were doing a lot of different things with Joe Mixon and even responded right after the pick six with it, with a score of their own. So you know, I mean, it just seems that they got behind the eight ball with that play, and that was just a crushing one. But uh, your take on what we saw Sunday as the Browns took care of the Bengals at home? Well, I was going to say, like, they did respond well to that pick six to go down the field the very next drive and to put together a touchdown drive. You know, they were tied at seven. They got the crowd back into it. It was an awful decision by Burrow, and I could have had a better route from Jamar Chase, but a great play made by Denzel Ward and you know this is another time when the Bengals got the ball first they lost the kickoff and they lost that possession because the Browns scored on it and then the Browns were going to get the ball to start the second half so that immediately went against the Bengals plans and it really hurts it really hurts looking back in hindsight because they were at the one yard line when it happened but then to go down and have a 10 play drive that ends with Joe Mixon running into the end zone that that equalizer was so huge because at that point you know they were already behind, like you said, behind the eight ball, and they were playing from behind at that point, despite having the ball first. So to get back up to seven apiece at that drive was was huge for them. But then as soon as the Browns scored on the next drive, you got you got to thinking that okay, if we're gonna if we're gonna do this intangible discussion, the Browns, this is just gonna be a day for them. This is gonna be a day where a lot of things work. And in years past, Baker Mayfield plays really well against this Bengals defense, regardless of who is out on the field against Luana Rumo. He looks like the Oklahoma version of himself. And this is now the first time that he's playing without Odell Beckham Jr. out there since his rookie year, or even, I guess, ever as, as a Brown. So the offense is clicking. The narrative of Odell is a cancer to the Browns offense. It's it's in full swing with how effective that they are. And the Bengals defense looks like the version that came out of New York. I think for me, though, where this game turned was the very next drive where the Bengals had two quick first downs after Brandon Wilson tore his ACL, returning the kickoff at the beginning of the second quarter. The Browns had just scored with Nick Chubb. It was 14-7. to Bengals have two first downs. They're at midfield. They go sack. They go drop on third and short right through Samaje Ryan's hands. They yep. allow some pressures on fourth and three. They throw a go ball to Tyler Boyd on basically a broken play, a play where there was no one open really on fourth and three with five receivers, which is not really excusable, especially going up against man coverage. That turnover on downs then led to a 60-yard touchdown to Donovan Peoples-Jones on play action. At that point, it's 21-7. to The Browns look like they can do whatever they want offensively. I don't think that anyone in the stadium thought that the Bengals had a chance after that one and, it, and it's crushing because the fact that they responded so well after the initial adversity but I think that just kind of preluded how the rest of the day was going to go and it really just came down to just turning the ball over and not taking advantage of of their drives as much here's the thing though John you mentioned Baker Mayfield and uh, you know all of that he was not asked to do all that much 21 pass attempts 14 completions and, you know, you look at 14 of 21 for 218. I mean, that's overall a pedestrian day by an NFL quarterback, but two touchdowns, zero interceptions, and they got him 
in the comfort zone, not only in the system that they run offensively with stuff coming out that, that people's Jones, it was a very weak play action, but it was a play action that that play came off of. And they got, they got Baker doing things off of play action. Like they love to do. He's doing a, a bit of the rollout thing. And, you know, 14 of 21 was not asked to be a hero in a week where it was so tumultuous for the Browns Browns defense nets, three, turnovers from the Bengals offense, two Burrow interceptions, and of course the Jamar Chase fumble. And because of that, they were able to do exactly what they wanted to do on offense, um, not play hero ball for Baker Mayfield and let Nick Chubb have a couple of big runs. There were a couple of really inexcusable plays in run defense. The the Obviously the 70 yarder is a big one. I remember one specifically, and I, I told myself I wasn't going to get into the weeds, but here we go. There was one specific play. It was a 13-yard run by Nick Chubb. I believe it was in the third quarter. He was stopped for like a negative two-yard loss by Trey Hendrickson. Goes right through his grasp, dances around blocks, and ends up getting 13 yards on, on a a play and it was just a microcosm of everything that that transpired really for the Bengals um just was not going their way and now because of these issues John we, we've got more questions than answers as they head into the bye um I, I I don't know I guess I guess what do you make of this because you had unfortunately you had turnovers by your best offensive players you had three turnovers by them you had I counted five drops um, some of them were tough balls, the T Higgins ball in the end zone that went off of his hands. That was high and away, but it was where it needed to be. Um, you know, th- there was a, a, a couple of drops by Higgins, the two big drops by chase, you know, one of which could argue, you know, Joe Burrow put it just beyond his, his true grasp, but went through both of his hands. I don't know. I, I guess, is this just fatigue and they just needed this break right now? Um, was it just, they were emotionally broken from the pick six. I I don't know. I'm trying to trying to make sense of all this. I don't think they were broken by the pick six because again, how they responded. I, I think the the Jamar Chase fumble uh, coming off of another uh, coming off of the People's Jones touchdown that definitely um, really put the nail in the already existing coffin that was at that point maybe four and a half feet in the dirt. And that point at that point it was probably six feet in the dirt. The Browns didn't exactly have the greatest second half from an offensive standpoint. They scored 17 points, but there was there was some punts. There was a missed field goal in there. There were some times when the Bengals defense, you know, bent but didn't break. But what the Browns did offensively wasn't or shouldn't be surprising based off of the recent history of this rivalry. We can call Baker Mayfield mid all we want. He owns the Bengals. He has their number. He looks like the guy who dominated at Oklahoma and even before the game, when you know Aditi Kikabwala was saying, like, or Jake Trotter was saying, this is a really determined Baker Mayfield, the guy with a chip on his shoulder. Like, the guy won a Heisman Trophy. He was the first overall pick, and he does well against this team. Like, he doesn't need this backstory of this guy who's constantly counted out. Like, the days of Texas Tech transferring to Oklahoma and, and being a walk-on, a backup. That, that's so far in the past, and specifically in this environment, like. He is that guy. He is going to show up for these games and do well. Like he doesn't need the, this story of being the guy who's always counted out. And he played like the guy who definitely belonged and apparently does well without one of the at a certain point in time, one of the best receivers in the NFL. And what else can you say about Nick Chubb and that offensive line? They are talented as hell. It's the best overall running game and scheme in football with the best offensive line coach. Like they did exactly what you should expect them to do. 
And for as much, as much strides as the Bengals defense has made this year, it's still a mismatch. Like they, the Bengals had four defensive tackles out on some of those plays and they still generated movement because you can't match up to that offensive line without putting up an equally good defensive line. And I, I think, you know, you were, you were talking about this before the show, like as much progress as the Bengals defense has made, this is just a matchup where they're just not ready yet. And I think it also goes back to the Bengals defense potentially overachieving early in the season when even in the first two weeks, two or three weeks, we're like, okay, this defense is doing well, but are they playing better than what they actually are? Are they playing better than their talent level suggests? Is it something to do with competition? And then they go into Baltimore and they dominate them and then they really legitimize legitimize themselves. These last two weeks are telling us a lot about, I think, the overall talent and ability of this defense. And maybe it's just a microcosm of the entire team where they've gotten to this point. They got to five and two quicker than anyone thought that they were. They were in talks of being playoff contenders and doing something in January when most people didn't think that they were going to get more than seven, eight wins. And now they're coming, kind of coming back down to earth and matching a lot of the preseason expectations. I think that has a lot to do or matches what the defense is in, in itself, where if they don't have a dominant pass rush every single week, if they get outclassed by an offensive line, there are some issues behind the defensive line that can get the best of them. And when you run into the best running game, when they already have a lead, it, it's basically over at that point. I love and by the way, this scheme, this matchup is not going to get any easier, is not going to be changing anytime soon because the Browns just re-signed both of their guards to long-term contracts this week, Joel Batonio and Wyatt Teller. So uh, good luck with that. I, I, I like what you said though about this it and I guess in a in an odd way, um Short term, it feels it makes you feel a little better. Long term, it makes you feel really sick to your stomach. In that, the notion that this is just a bad matchup personnel wise for the Cincinnati Bengals, the way their roster is constructed, the scheme that the Browns run, the schemes that the Bengals try and run against against this team, and oddly enough, this rivalry has taken a stark turn under Zach Taylor as opposed to what it looked like under Marvin Lewis. Now, I think it has to do with the Browns finally having some semblance of a quarterback and having a franchise quarterback. But every single, I mean, I can think of a lot of pretty good performances by Baker Mayfield as a pro. His best performances every time are against the Cincinnati Bengals. Every time. It's uncanny. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, it's unbelievable. And so... The Bengals invested a lot of money on their defense the past couple of seasons, a lot of draft capital on their defense at the linebacker group, the defensive line in the secondary, and they come up with just a couple of sacks, very inconsistent pressure on Baker Mayfield outside of Sam Hubbard was one of the lone bright spots, and even he had some inconsistencies. Hendrickson did get to him once, but that was the only play he made all day. And then, you know, no turnovers forced, none of that. And here, here we sit and, and kind of having the similar frustrations and the Bengals just cannot find a way to counter the Browns attack unless it gets it's what we saw the last couple of games last year where it's a shootout and the Bengals kind of tried to get into that mode a little bit and they kept turning the ball over. And I will say when we talked about keys to this game last week, I mentioned that you know, this Browns defense had been underwhelming despite the talent on paper. Like on paper, their roster is is completely full to the brim of overall complete talent. There's not a lot of weak spots, but for whatever reason, their defense wasn't performing that well before this game. And I talked about like, okay, the Bengals 
bolster their receiving core with Jamar Chase. They have a passing offense that can compete against any secondary, but the Browns on paper have really talented cornerbacks and just a really talented secondary as a whole. And I, and I thought that that was going to be the difference in this game because the Browns offense, they're, they're going to do whatever they want to the Bengals defense until the Bengals defense figures out a way to counter it. Like they have against Baltimore and like what they found out against the Ravens. So this is going to be a shootout. This was going to be a shootout. We both predicted uh, scores in like the high 20s or the or the low 30s. Can the Bengals match what the Browns do offensively? And that has to come through their passing game. And the Browns cornerbacks answered the bell. Like Greg Newsome, Denzel Ward, obviously Ward had the pick six, but Newsome had most of his work against Jamar Chase. He only allowed 30, uh, 30 yards on three receptions. He was the main defender on, I think, two of Jamar Chase's drops, and they were tightly contested drops as well. So that seems to be the difference right now. Like the Bengals, they can pass the ball at times against certain opponents, but if they don't have that consistent output from their receiving core, and if they run into secondaries that are as talented as Cleveland, it's going to be an issue. And the last thing they can do is compound on that lack of success with turnovers and two interceptions from Burrow and a fumble from Chase. That'll kill you against a team that not only has a great running game, but a pass rush that will annihilate you if you're in obvious passing passing situations. Like the Bengals didn't do that bad against miles garrett there were a couple calls that maybe should have been holding but like they did all they could to minimize the impact that garrett had but it's not just garrett they have other complementary pieces and jadavian Clowney, malik mcdowell and malik jackson who sacked burrow last year when he was at the eagles like they have guys that can take the attention away from garrett and when you're down by three scores in the second half and you're leaving your quarterback out there because he has to score points like it's only going to get worse. So the Bengals offensive line did, I think, as well as you could have expected against this defensive line. But when you're in that position, it just doesn't matter. And I think a lot of the onus falls on the receivers not having good days. And also with Burroughs and some of those um, some of those throws that unfortunately ended up going the other way. So the notion of not having good days, which is definitely true, I guess I guess I just want to ask you how you are looking at this. Are you looking at this? more with a short-term type of um, lens where you say, you know what, this just, you know, five drops from a number of different receivers, a couple of which would have been touchdowns. Um, Burrow throwing the pick six, just a bad day, just a bad day, bad couple bad plays here and there. And they, you know, the Bengals are right there. And now the bye week comes at a good time, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Or are you looking at at things kind of with more a long-term lens where you say these two losses these past two weeks are starting to expose some of the areas of the Cincinnati Bengals weaknesses and the, what we just talked about about a kind of a, a matchup problem between the Bengals and the Browns going forward it doesn't seem very objective to hop on this show after the Ravens win claim it for the validity that it had and to then not be concerned after this game I think it's only a coincidence that the scores are almost identical. And that's kind of, it's like the opposite side of um, emotion wise, like how you should feel. You should have felt great after the Bengals took care of business in Baltimore. And you should feel that equal level of concern after this loss to Cleveland, not just for the overall uh, playoff dynamic, but I think just the scope of where they probably fall in this division. Like, the Bengals going five and two half of those wins are coming against division rivals that they haven't had a lot of success with, but they still can't get past this team, this team that was created in, in spite of them, right? Like the, 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 the dynamic and the history of this rivalry. And now it's in this state of affairs 
And then it also goes to the playoff dynamic where they were five and two and they were favorites to win the division. Now they're five and four and Vegas has them with nine wins. And you have to think, does nine wins get you that seventh seed in, in a tightly contested and really crowded AFC at this point? I think, and I think this is the, the, the biggest point though, is the shift in expectations because after Baltimore, the, the preseason projections get thrown out the window, right? They were projected to win six, six and a half uh, wins or six and a half games before the season starts. They're at five. So now your your whole expectations, your whole priors are are basically discarded at that point. Now, after two losses, they kind of come back down to earth. They're kind of like right back where they started, right, right, right where we had them in the preseason, right around the eight to nine win range. And it, it says something about maybe the coaches and players managing success the fact that they haven't really been in the situation before and they're just kind of uh, learning through it right now. But just in comparing these two losses, like the Jets loss, it's it's like a slap in the face, right? You're not expecting it, but it's like, it's whatever. It's the NFL. It's randomness. It's parody. This loss feels like a bucket of ice water being dropped down on you. It's such a deflating, demoralizing defeat that you have to look in yourself in the mirror and realize what is going on. And I do think that there is value to having a bye week and time to figure that stuff out because this isn't something that you can just discard as just, it's just another Sunday. This has implications of being something a lot bigger. It does. And, you know, unfortunately I know a lot of people don't like, including myself, don't like to point to this, don't like to admit to this, but uh, you know, the things we heard as Bengals fans and those of us who cover the team and all of that, the things we heard from Steelers fans and Ravens fans after those wins were what, John? We didn't have TJ Watt. We didn't have Alex Highsmith. We didn't have all these guys on the Baltimore Ravens that were injured. We haven't even played our best football. We lost all these running backs that blah, blah, blah. And we kind of were like, yeah, whatever. We still took care of business. We being the Bengals, the Royal, we took care of business on your home turf by multiple possessions. And, and I think there is validity in the, in those kind of blowout wins, but those questions now come back, especially with those teams winning games, the Pittsburgh Steelers being one, they're winning ugly, but they are winning. And now you, you know, you kind of say, well, was there a little bit of element of fool's gold in this? And you start to doubt, but you know, doubt just kind of creeps in with what's been happening over these past two weeks. But I did hear and listen to Joe Burrow on Colin Cowherd's show the Monday following the Browns' loss, and that dude was about as even-keeled as you can be, and he was, you know, we're not worried. I think C.J. Uzama said it in the post-game press conference, we're not panicking. So, I mean, hopefully that's the way they look at it. All of us out here may be panicking a little bit based on what we've seen the past couple of weeks, but... Uh, I don't know. I, I guess some of those some of those doubts creep in for me a little bit based on looking at this two game sample size as compared to what happened early in the season, and you kind of measure the variables. And then, of course, it is nice to see some of your team leaders kind of say and, and say the right things as things are going into the bye week. And if everyone wants to make the case like, oh, they're just not mentally there yet, like they're going to collapse, you know, they don't have the leadership, they're just young. I think you can just look at this and just say that. Maybe they kind of are who we more who we thought they were. Maybe they are this team that's capable of winning 12 or 13 games uh, a year before anyone expected that to happen. Maybe they're just kind of regressing back to the mean. And that can happen when you face really talented teams who just have 
or who are just clicking on all cylinders. Like, yeah, you can look at this as a as a bad day and obviously a bad matchup, but you can also look at it and say maybe some of the things they they were doing well early in the season, it's it's they aren't as good as those numbers early in the season indicate. And that's why they play a full season. That's how you get the full scope of which teams are actually good and which aren't. And I guess saying that kind of makes it sound like the Bengals are a little bit fraudulent, but maybe they just did kind of overachieve a little bit. It doesn't mean that they're bad. It just means that they are they are not there yet. They're not a year early like maybe we thought that they were when they were five and two. Yeah, they are they they lose to the Browns 41-16 and they are now five and four heading into the bye week. They have a very, very intriguing schedule coming up on the back end of things here, John, because they face all three AFC North teams again, two of which are at home. They face a lot of Jekyll and Hyde AFC teams like themselves, quite honestly, the Broncos. The, I mean, all of the AFC West is a, is a Jekyll and Hyde type of situation. And they they face, uh, um, I think, basically the entire division, if I'm not mistaken, um, the, the back half here. they've got. I know they've got the Chargers, the Chiefs, the Raiders, and the Broncos. Yeah, all four are in, are in the final half here. And then you've got the three divisional games there. So, I mean, they've, they've got a lot to sort out. But this, this, I mean, it's both staggering that the Bengals were at the top seed of the AFC in just a couple of weeks. They are now what would be deemed, I guess, the 10th seed in the playoff picture. But when you look at the whole scrum of things, it's a lot of five-win teams. So, and, and the Bengals go head-to-head with a lot of those teams. It's a good and bad thing. It's good because, I mean, we saw, I think a lot of us, looked at the Buffalo Bills as like the class of this conference and they just lose six to nine to the Jacksonville Jaguars. I think you weren't alone in that department, but yeah, that's the good yeah. thing. Like there, there, there is no Kansas city chiefs of the 2019, 2018. There is no Tom Brady Patriots of this conference right now. It's a lot of teams in there. And the, the team at the top is a team that the Bengals beat by what? 24 points three weeks ago. So it's good and bad in the sense that they are far from out of this, but at the same time, there's a lot of teams that can make that similar case. So that that's what makes it exciting. Like I, I wrote about this in my article, like this is an, an incredibly exciting time to follow the Bengals, not exciting in the sense that, you know, they're going to be all right, but exciting in the sense that you don't know what's going to come next. And it, it could go one way or the other. And there's equal evidence to support which way they're going to go. And a lot of it, a lot of it does depend on the teams that they face, like a lot of the teams that they play in the last eight weeks, they're also in the playoff picture. So that will also tell us, hey, if they can compete with these teams, if they can beat these teams convincingly, then yeah, they definitely do belong. If they don't, on to twenty twenty two. Well, Bengals are five and four heading into the bye week. A lot of a lot of winnable games, tough games, but winnable games coming down the stretch here. We'll see how they how they fare. And I, I think you know, uh, the optimist in me is thinking that we will look back at this bye week and say, wow, what a godsend this thing this thing was and where it was timed for a lot of different reasons. But uh, a lot of questions, a lot of questions and concerns based on what's transpired the past couple of weeks. Support for this podcast comes from Smartwater. Life moves pretty fast. Are you drinking water that can keep up? Smartwater Alkaline has everything you need to stay hydrated, no matter where your day takes you. Whether you're pitching a tent or your next big idea, Smart Water Alkaline can help you perform your best. It delivers a pure, crisp taste that makes it the perfect chaser after a big workout. Elevate how you hydrate and pick up a Smart Water Alkaline today. To learn more, visit drinksmartwater.com. We're going to get to a stat of the week and talk about kind of where we think things are 
at the midseason point of the year. But before we do, you know what time it is, John? Oh, it's symbol time, man. It's symbol time. It is symbol time. And there is a new website, which we will share with you, website address in just a second. But um, symbol, S-I-M-B-U-L-L. That is where you can buy teams and shares of teams like they are stocks. You can trade them and make money off of teams, whether they're ones that you are passionate about, ones that you feel there are great opportunities in uh, in investing, whether it's short-term or long-term. Symbol is something you have to add to your slate if you are a fantasy football player, a survival football player. You bet on any kinds of games. This is a, a it's different. But you, if you do any of that kind of stuff, you got to check out Symbol. What's the new website, John? And what do they got going for our listeners? So for the last six and a half months now, we've been promoting Symbol.app, S-I-M-B-U-L-L.app. Now it's a new look, Symbol.com, just like your ordinary other website. Symbol.com has a brand new look. It's a lot more engaging. It's a lot more interactive. The, the interface is a lot more friendly. And there's also some new features, man. We, like we've talked about, Symbol is not just your ordinary gambling type industry or whatever, but now they have these things called Pick 3 Leagues. What's Pick 3, you might ask? I'm glad you asked. Pick 3 is an exciting <laughs> new game where you pick three games against the point spread each week. For every game you get right, you add one point to your score in a season-long competition. You can create leagues to complete against to compete against family and friends. You can join leagues. Most league commissioners create a league for their friends to collect an, er- an entry fee to reward the top performers. You can earn symbol cash with the games that you get right. And speaking of symbol cash, if you deposit five hundred up to $500 using the promo code OBI, when you go to symbol.com backslash OBI, you get up to that $500 guaranteed risk-free for the first 90 days. So you can put your symbol cash into the market. You can put it into symbol six. And if you don't like the market, if you're losing, if you just realize it's not for you, you get those $500 back within the first 90 days. It's a complete no-brainer if you want to try something new, something exciting to leverage your sports knowledge in the NFL, NBA, MLB, college football, and this starting this year, NHL. It's a lot of fun. And there's a lot of new features, and it's a lot better-looking website at symbol.com backslash OBI, promo code OBI. Good stuff. What's the stat of the week, sir? Give it to us. So I think, like I mentioned with this defense, a lot of it has been on the pass rush, I think kind of carrying it and on offense, a lot of the success, not surprising has come from the pass rush being negated going towards Joe Burrow. And I think this roller coaster that we're kind of noticing, it's quantified pretty damningly in terms of just Joe Burrow and the quarterbacks that he's facing. So in the first two weeks, when they went up against the Vikings and the bears, Joe Burrow was pressured 23 times in those game, two games combined, and he was sacked 10 times. So his sack to pressure rate was an NFL high 43.5% for the first two weeks. From weeks three to seven, starting with the Pittsburgh Steelers game where he wasn't touched, to that Ravens game where he was barely touched as well, he was pressured 47 times, but only sacked seven times. So that's a sack to pressure rate of 14.9%. Going back to these last two weeks, he has been pressured 26 times, and sacked eight times. So it's not the 43.5% that he was at, through the first two weeks, but 30.7 is still a lot higher than that 14.9 during that stretch of, of consistent winning. But it's not just that. On defense, for Mike White and Baker Mayfield, they were also pressured a combined 26 times. They were only sacked a, a total of four times, about half that sack pressure, sack to pressure rate. And I think that's what we kind of saw in these games. Mike White and Baker Mayfield, while they were sacked a, hand, a couple of times each, 
for most of the game, they were either hurried, but they got the ball out quickly and the defense didn't really finish. And what have we seen from this defense with, without Trey Hendrickson and Sam Hubbard and DJ Reader making plays in the backfield? A lot of tackling issues, a lot of coverage bust, unfortunately. Eli Apple looks like he's regressing back to the player that he was. Jadobi Wuzia has not been playing himself, and he's now on the COVID list. Jesse Bates is still not playing at that elite level like I think we all expected him to, and a lot of tackling issues. And that, and a lot of them has come from the defensive line, but that has also been a, a big problem with this defense, and it's been really exposed now because their offenses are extending drives because, because they're, they're not taking sacks like they have been in the first uh, seven weeks or so so Mike White and Baker Mayfield their success a lot of it has to do with the, with the defensive line not finishing and on the opposite side of the ball Joe Burrow's getting sacked more often like he was in the first two weeks it's not really complicated when you when you boil it down like that that is a really really just a crazy dichotomy there and it explains a lot as to why the results have been what they have been over the past couple of weeks, I I wrote up a winners and or um, not the winners and losers, the the good, the bad, and the ugly for CincyJungle.com. Shameless self promotion here. One of the things I did when I was looking at the the stats and different, you know, I, I pointed out something to the effect of where are the impact plays on defense. You know, the tackling in the beginning of the year when the tackling was more sound, they were getting after the quarterback a little bit more, and there was just a little more consistency. The lack of big turnovers or big plays really didn't matter that much because they were kind of getting off the field, uh, you know, more often than not and, and limiting a lot of damage. And even in some of the losses, the points weren't really crazy in the amount that they had given up. Well, one thing that I've noticed, John, and this is a, this is a good step, but it also shows a bad stat as well. So I guess I'm kind of tacking on another little stat of the week onto yours. The Bengals are tied for sixth in the NFL with 23 sacks. Um, the, the issue with all of that, and that's great. And that's a big improvement off of what we've seen in the, you know, the past couple of past couple of years, but, um, look, they are middle of the pack tied with a bunch of teams with seven forced fumbles and they only have, but if I'm, if I'm reading this correctly, they only have two fumble recoveries on the year. So my point is, they're getting after the quarterback a lot. They are sacking the quarterback a lot, but the strip sack fumbles and recovery of those are not occurring and, or they're not hitting the quarterback where, you know, it kind of flutters, you know, if you get a quarterback hit and the ball gets kind of jarred loose, that's, that's technically a pass causes an interception. Those types of things aren't occurring for this defense, even though they are giving themselves these opportunities in the form of quarterback sacks, pressures, et cetera. So, I don't, you know, I don't know if that directly kind of plays into some of the stuff that you were talking about, but there's this kind of domino effect, I think, that that we see where, you know, you're talking about pressure rates and that sort of thing. But even when they're there, the high impact sack fumble recovery thing is not is not occurring, which is kind of an oddity given the fact that they are just outside the top five in sacks in the NFL this year. Dude, it's crazy. Like, so you said they have seven forced fumbles. I, I think I think two fumble recoveries is actually more than I thought. I I, I don't remember <laughs> them recovering a fumble at all this season. I feel like yeah. that's just been the theme. Every single game, they they had this great play. Like Logan Wilson stripped Nick Chubb uh, in this past game, and they fell on mm-hmm. it. There was like Keen Davis Gaither forcing the fumble against the Ravens. Two plays later, that is a huge touchdown to Marquise Brown, and then obviously Logan Wilson not falling on the ball in week two, and 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 leading to another a, a bare score or a lack of a fumble recovery return for a touchdown. Like 
it's incredible how they're forcing this many fumbles, but not falling on it and not recovering it. I, I, I don't know what the average is for in terms of recovering fumbles that you force, but I think they have to be well below it. And also, interceptions wise, Jadobi Woozy is the only is the Jadobi that Jadobi Wuzier and Jermaine and Jesse Bates have the only interceptions in that secondary, and they, they right. just have one apiece. If they, they don't have Logan Wilson on this crazy pace of four interceptions, they're basically right back to where they started or right back where they were in the last handful of years. Seven of those on the year, so averaging less than one a game in that regard, too. So, um, you know, I mean, there have been, I, I guess, my point with that, especially when you look at this last week and the fact that the Bengals turned the ball over three times. And then you look at the fact that they netted zero turnovers, no, you know, no interceptions, no fumble recoveries, nothing. And then you look a little deeper into some of these, you know, sacks, no forced fumbles type of thing. Um, you know, I, I think you're seeing kind of one of those exploited weaknesses, if you will, or exploited kind of oddities on the team that are, are kind of showing why they're on this two game skid. Yeah, it was the Vikings game where they they forced a controversial fumble against Dalvin Cook, mm-hmm. and it was want to say what was it Von Bell against the Jets, where he ran, ran down that play. I think that was yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. S- six weeks in between. So, <laughs> yikes, yikes. Well, uh, you know, it's it's a great stat of the week by you, and uh, I just tried to sound smart by tacking on a couple of other little things with that, but. Uh, we all know that uh, teams largely live and die by generating pressure and disallowing pressure on their quarterback. And unfortunately, you know, your stat kind of points to that. We are going to close up here with a little chat on where we think things are mid season for the Bengals. It's an appropriate time because we're like basically right, almost right down the middle. It's, an 18 weeks, 17 game season. So we got to kind of play with it a little bit, but of course the bye week is kind of noting that this is the midway point here, but look, um, I, I don't, I don't, we can get to grades, I guess in a little bit, but uh, wh- where do you want to start with it with our mid season review, John, do you want to kind of start with some of the things we are surprised at positively and negatively? Uh, I, I, th- I guess that's, kind of a good spot to start yeah let's go back and forth because expectations i think are still a great topic with this team and how they've changed and our expectations on the the team in general but also individual players and position groups i think um they've also changed based off of the results on the field so we're, we're gonna go back and forth we're gonna name one positive in terms of where your expectations were before the season and where they are now or just what the results have been. So we're going to name one positive each, and then we're going to turn around and go with a negative, something that you expected to be a lot better than what it is, but it has underperformed. So how would you start us off with a positive, something that has been a lot better than you expected before the season began? I I will point to the stat that I just brought up in terms of quarterback sacks uh, and the fact that the team is, I mean, they're tied with a handful of teams, but they are tied for sixth highest in the league with quarterback sacks right now. And, you know, it, it, it shows, and, and, you know, the, the team leader is the guy that they spent a lot of money and free agency on and Trey Hendrickson. So, you know, I mean, the, the, he hasn't been an absolutely perfect player, but he has had an impact for sure on this team, a positive impact for sure. 
And so, you know, you, you look at that investment and you say, well, you know, kudos to the Bengals there with, with 23 sacks uh, as a unit. Um, a lot of different players have gotten to the quarterback, BJ Hill, Larry Ogunjobi, Sam Hubbard, Trey Hendrickson. Sam Hubbard's having, I think, arguably his best season as a pro, just from a consistency standpoint and from an all around player standpoint. So, I mean, I, I guess positively speaking, I will say that I like where they're at with the quarterback sacks category. And if I were to expand on that or I just focus on just one player, I think it has to be Trey Hendrickson. Like at least, at least for me, I was one of the people who didn't think that those sack numbers from the saints were going to translate so instantly. And so effortlessly, he's not only, getting a lot of sacks he's i think one of the top 10 uh starting edge rushers and just overall win rate against true pass sets so they, they've been legitimate i think brandon thorne also scores like um high quality sacks among pass rushers and he's top four in that like just right behind uh, tj watt and, and other players like that so he, like as a player he's I, I think one of the biggest surprises but for the sake of going on the other side of the ball i think it has to be jamar chase um just because if we're going off of just expectations, we expected him to be good. We expected him to be better than what he was in the preseason, but it cannot be understated how impressive he was in the first seven weeks. It was something that we've never seen before from a receiver. And it, it was possible, I think, before he started practicing and, and dropping balls and, and you know not having the greatest exhibition performances, but... You know, there was a lot of hype with T. Higgins and obviously Tyler Boyd existed, too. So when Chase was having these struggles that you couldn't really ignore, I think it tempered expectations of, okay, this combination with Burrow and him, it's not going to click immediately. There's going to be some rough patches, at least to begin the season. And it's not going to be immediately what we saw in 2019. But it, it was exactly what we saw in 2019. It was the NFL version it looked like they hadn't even missed a beat it looked like they were just playing in different uniforms but in the same year in 2019 it 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 exceeded a lot of my expectations for him I didn't expect him to be this this good so soon for being so young and being a year out of football and unfortunately the last two weeks they're showing the pitfalls of being a rookie receiver sometimes sometimes you will torch Marlon Humphrey one of the best cornerbacks in the game and sometimes another great cornerback in Denzel Ward will have your number and as soon as you know he had that performance against the Ravens, the Jets immediately put cloud coverage on him. They didn't want him to get over the top, and he was limited in that, but he still got a touchdown in that game. So I, th I think we expected Jamar Chase to be good. We didn't expect him to be this good, and that deserves a lot of praise. For sure. For sure. And I, I, it's, I, I cannot disagree with you. I think I read something, uh, and I needed to have that in front of me. But basically, I think he's still close to – he's in between 55 and 60% in terms of the favorite to win Rookie of the Year this year. And that's like two to two and a half times the person right behind him. Um, so, I mean, he, he is a runaway favorite for Rookie of the Year, and that is – definitely saying something and it also says something that the past two games wherein he has struggled there's been a couple of drops that could have been touchdowns in both games he struggles this team is struggling and they lose um so that, i mean it's he's not the only one struggling and he is not the only thing that gets this team going but there is a direct correlation there for sure 100 so what do you have for the the less than impressed uh, portion of this Less than impressed, huh? Um, I, I'm, I guess I'm going to say 
some elements of the secondary. Uh, I'll start there. I mean, we can, we we're hopefully we're going to do a couple of these. Um, so I, you know, I, I look at Jesse Bates, one interception granted that was like inches away from being a pick six. Um, but one interception from him has not really been cracking the top PFF scores of any kind, as was the narrative last year. You know, everybody wanted him to resign, resign, resign. He has not played up to the same level that we saw last year. We had a conversation about this last week, John, where we talk about he's always been a tale of two seasons within one season kind of guy. So hopefully this back end will flip it for him. He he has been quiet, though. I really like what I've seen from a Wouzier. Um, unfortunately, the Trey Waynes thing is just exposing all kinds of different issues on the other cornerback spot. Von Bell has been Von Bell for the most part. He'll he'll struggle in coverage in certain situations, but otherwise he's very physical. He's out there. He's making a, you know a, a couple of plays, and he has scored well in a couple of games. Um, but all in all, you know Mike Hilton. I, I loved that acquisition. I'm still not seeing the the huge plays, the the interceptions, the sacks, and things of that nature that really was made him a coveted guy in free agency, not really having the impact plays. I still think he is a valuable acquisition there. So, you know, I think it's just been a real mixed bag with the Awuzie acquisition being a, a really good one. Um, your star safety, not playing up to expectations. The other cornerback spot that has been manned by Eli Apple, that was kind of not expected based on, you know, you thought you would have Trey Wayne's back. I think there's just been kind of some issues there and the secondary play has surprised me a bit. Yeah, I think we looked at the positive potential of the secondary, kind of assumed that that was going to be the case for the entirety of the 17 games where Mike Hilton gives you value in run defense and in, and in pass rush and coverages in this forte. And Jesse Bates, he played an all-pro level last year, so obviously that's going to continue. But you're right, Jesse Bates usually goes, goes through these cycles, and I think that's something that maybe the front office was counting on when they didn't give him the contract that he wanted. And honestly, looking at the, the numbers for Mike Hilton, like last year in his last year with the, with the Steelers, he missed 26% of his tackles. He's missing 22% of his tackles with the Bengals, which is still pretty high. It's fourth on the team right now. I think third among starters, but I guess it's not out of characteristic for Mike Hilton. And he's on pace to match like his usual number of pressures as a pass rusher. And he already has a sack and a quarterback hit on the season. So Mike Hilton is mainly giving you what you signed Mike Hilton to be, but we're seeing, unfortunately, compounded with the overall issues of the defense, some of the negatives kind of uh, rear their head. And Jesse Bates, obviously, you know, if based off what he did last year, I think that kind of clouded a lot of our judgments that that was going to continue, even though we have to realize that what he was doing last year was so out of the ordinary that he was probably going to come back down to earth a little bit. It's just that we haven't really seen that, hey, I'm Jesse Bates. I'm a great field uh, center field safety. We haven't really seen that moment outside mm-hmm. of, a, of a tipped interception. I'm going to go in terms of, for, for me, I think I have to go with Burrow just a little bit I, because in college, he didn't really make these dumb mistakes. And I know it's stupid because the, the differences between being a college quarterback and an NFL quarterback is is dire. It's drastic. But the whole point with Burrow is that he's a field general. He's paid Manning back there in the pre-snap phase, and he doesn't get rattled, and he doesn't make bad decisions, and he knows what coverage you're playing. You can't zero me. Like, he's the smartest person on the field. I don't know if you can have that identity, but also being amongst the league leaders, not only interceptions, but bad throw turnover worthy throw percentage like these interceptions aren't unlucky you go through all 11 i think you can 
blame at least eight on Burrow for just being bad throws. And, you know, it's not always black and white like that. It's not always just it's got to be this person. It's got to be on the offense or the defense. Sometimes the defenders make a good play, but that's the life of being a quarterback, right? Those interceptions, they're attached to your name. And when you dig through the context of it, most of them are going to be on the quarterback. So 11 interceptions, they can't all be attributed to attributed to bad luck and we kind of saw the the downfall of that in the in the browns game where he if he doesn't have those explosive passes down the field connect with jamar chase or t higgins if he doesn't have the multi-touchdown games like he had for the first eight games those interceptions can kill you and it has to be something that tones down for the rest of the season if this team wants to be competitive you know i understand that joe burrow is a great quarterback and he's done great in a lot of areas this year but that is an area that i don't think a lot of people expected him to be bad at as a second year quarterback a guy who already had experience coming into the season and because joe burrow is a great quarterback and we all understand how great he is we can have these conversations without having to coddle him or defend him this isn't an andy dalton situation like we expect more from him because we know how good he is so we can have these conversations about he needs to get better here and it's a real issue we can't tiptoe around it well, he's look. I mean, there's been a lot of good with Joe Burrow. Obviously, the the franchise record and and I mean, quasi NFL record of multiple touchdown games to start a season. I think it was eight that he started with this this year of two or more touchdowns in games, and you know was up there in the league leaders and touchdown passes and all kinds of different things. But there there are moments, and sometimes it is in moments where the team is playing catch up or uh, you know, trying to come back from from a deficit. And there are things kind of to your point, at least that I see, where it it, it he locks in. Um, sometimes it's on chase. A lot of times it's on chase. He locks in on a play. And, and for a guy that is, like you said, kind of Peyton Manning, read the field, read the coverage, and, and really use his eyes to manipulate safeties and whatnot, there are times where he just locks in on a, on a player and he's like, that's where I'm going. And I, I think the play last week, uh, the second interception, maybe even the first one too, but it was just like, I'm going here and that's where this ball is going. There's tight coverage here. I don't care. I think that speaks also to his confidence in his own arm. But I, I think at some point you got to be able to look off something if it's not truly there and or recognize that it's not there. And I think he's still going through that process and some of the interviews and stuff that, and things that he has said recently, I mentioned the Colin Coward interview from earlier this week. He talked about how he is a quarterback that is still learning and uh, teams are showing him different things. The other thing, John, and I, I don't, I think you and I know about it. I don't know how uh, our listeners or readers, but the, the burrow, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but basically burrow when he is not blitzed is far less efficient than when he has been blitzed. Uh, in throwing the football. And that to me is a really odd dichotomy for a quarterback because it is almost always the opposite. Right. And a lot of that has to do with just quarterbacks being under pressure. But I think there's a difference between knowing that the blitz is coming or scenes from the pre-snap that a blitz is coming and having a having like a hot read ready for you going off of where that extra blitzer is coming. I think that is a strength of Joe Burrow to recognize what's coming before the snap having that quick decision already kind of loaded in your mind and then making that decision based off of what you know. And then when there's pressure, when there's just guys missing their blocks and there's you know pressure m- messing up the timing of the play, that is where a lot of quarterbacks uh, end up getting struggled. I think that's also something that Andy Dalton was really good at. Like, honestly, you compare the splits between when he was blitzed and when he was just in, in a clean pocket, sometimes 
Andy Dalton's internal clock would kind of speed up and that would lead to some bad decisions or basically just dead plays because he didn't know how to extend. But the difference is Joe Burrow does know how to extend. He does keep his eyes down the field and he does hold on to the ball as well. But also, like, these are just also issues that young quarterbacks go through. It's just nowadays, like, the standard is so high for quarterbacks to at least be above average in their first two years because they're going out there and that's what we've seen from other quarterbacks in recent memory. Like, quarterbacks are just being thrown out to the wolves and they're expected to survive and joe burrow has done more than survive in, in this sense and we have confidence that it's going to get better but it does have to get better really quick if they expect to compete absolutely do you have another positive that you um uh, something that is more positive than you had expected um that you want to touch on before we kind of get to grades and other negatives etc um I, I think bj hill has been BJ Hill being better, more consistent than Larry Ogunjobi is a little bit surprising to me. Um, I, I saw you use my tweet in one of the, one of your articles about just how wild Larry awesome. Ogunjobi's season has been. Being top three in sacks and top, I think, seven in run stops, but also being one of the worst in terms of consistently getting pressure and also missing more tackles than any defensive tackle. He is the 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 adam dunn of the cincinnati yeah, Penguins, you know, the, the guy yeah yeah exactly who, who hits under 200 but also hits 40 home runs and I, joe Go, joe goodberry mentioned this right when larry Kenjobi was signed like he, he he reminded him a lot of tank johnson who was signed like in the late 2000s a guy who was really boomer bust at the position like they've seen the booms from larry Kenjobi, but the, the difference between him and like a geno atkins is that he wouldn't miss tackles he would be able to uh, run down Nick Chubb at, on the backside of plays and wouldn't be in the wrong gaps and stuff like that and not over pursue on plays. But I think that's more or less who Larry Ogunjobi is. And as long as you have the depth to overcome that and you have the discipline from other players, you can survive with that. So BJ Hill being more consistent specifically as a run defender, but also providing a pass rush has definitely been a surprise. And I think if you can, if, at the end of the season, if this keeps at this pace, I think you have a strong argument for keeping BJ Hill over Larry Ogunjobi if you're only going to keep one. Yeah, the, the, the interior linemen um, have, have played well to varying degrees, and B.J. Hill has been a nice find, but he's kind of cooled off. Like like a lot of others on the defense, yeah. his, his impact has cooled off of late. Logan Wilson's impact has cooled off of late. So, um, And, again, we talked about Chase struggling in these past couple of weeks. Some of those players on defense struggling as well the past couple of weeks directly correlates to, uh, you know, what – what's happening on, on defense and the results that we have seen. One of the positives I will say that, uh, you know, I guess if we're talking individual players, um, I'm going to say CJ Uzama. Uh, CJ Uzama has stepped up. I, I wasn't quite sure how he was going to bounce back from that injury. He had two massive games um, in arguably two of the team's biggest and most important wins of the season against the Jaguars. Yeah, I said it. That was an important one. And of course, the Ravens in Baltimore having, um, you know, 186 yards combined on eight catches and four touchdowns in those two games alone. He has five on the year, uh, obviously behind Chase in that regard. But, um, you know, for a guy that's kind of been down the pecking order and that position is down the pecking order in the Zach Taylor system, passing system, uh, he has stepped up and been a nice outlet and has been a really good story for this team this year. And it, it, coincides with his ascension to a leadership role in the locker room as well. So kudos to, to 87. He's played well this year. And he's doing that a year off of a terrible injury and a, and a torn Achilles. And unfortunately it hasn't been the same for another offensive player in Trey Hopkins, who I think we can safely say as long as Trey Hopkins is out there, 
like you assume that he's good enough to play, but he has not looked like he's good enough to play. And unfortunately for the team, they don't really have another option aside from a rookie in Trey Hill, who has also looked not very good or not ready to play. So they're kind of in a situation where they're dealing with a center who, for whatever reason, just doesn't look like his old self. And yeah. I, I say whatever reason, but I think we kind of know the reason he's 30 years old coming off another torn ACL. And it's only been, I think, 10 full months since he actually had that tear. And I think for, for Joe Burrow, the 10 month mark was around August. So he had, he was on a more accelerated timeline. I guess the, the actual injury itself was not as serious as Joe Burrow's, but he just doesn't look like the old Trey Hopkins. And that really is a shame because the old Trey Hopkins was a really good center. Yeah. Uh, what do you got for one final negative, uh, I guess, or worse than you thought or worse than you expected? Not to end the thing on a sour note, but uh, <laughs> what, what do you what do you think about that? I mean, Trey Hopkins was was more or less my final one, but I guess to add another one compared to what we talked about right before the season, you know, you would have expected a little bit more consistency out of T Higgins. I know that he did really well yeah. against the jets and he had his moments in some other games, but um, he's, it's not like he's not getting the ball thrown his way. He, I think he still leads the, the team in targets, or at least he's really close to Jamar chase. And he did have like the overwhelming, um, lead in targets at a certain point in the season. But I think it's a lot of some of the big plays down the field that, they did not connect with him and Burrow did not connect with last year. And that was a point of emphasis of getting more explosive plays down the field. And T Higgins for being such a consistent, you know, ball hawk as a downfield threat. He has not really had that, that moment really in the NFL where like, I'm going to go get this ball. This is mine. Like Deandre Hopkins, Mike Williams, the Clemson receivers of the past, like that has not been what T Higgins has been known for so far. And he's had opportunities this year where, you know, the ball's thrown up to him. And I think only once that he's come down with it and, Really, that catch against the Jets probably shouldn't have counted when you look at the replays. So he kind of got away with one there for the refs not calling it. So there has not been a lot of success or consistency at all with those contested catch situations. And I think that was what a lot of people wanted T. Higgins to improve upon. And a lot of people expected him to do based off of what we were hearing in the offseason. That's that's where I was going to go were the two names you mentioned in terms of Boyd and Higgins. I mean, I think we had this grandiose... You know, they could have three 1,000-yard receivers and double-digit touchdowns for everybody and all that kind of stuff, and that sounds great and that looks great, but, um, you know, you got to fulfill the expectations as well. And I still think, you know, I, I thought I was all over T. Higgins in terms of him being a breakout guy this year, um, and he he has struggled in those. And, and if you remember, John, he is he was a guy that, that that was like one of the biggest selling points as to why they drafted him was exactly. – yeah, the, these contested catch situations. I mean, that's like why they were so enamored with him aside from the size and, and whatnot. So, um, you know, he is just not winning those battles. And it's one of those things that needs to turn the other way if the Bengals are going to make a playoff push. There were a couple, I, I, you know, the one, it was a tough catch this last week, the one in the end zone where he really had to extend and he had a guy kind of on him, but it went right off his hand. I mean, he, he went up high for it. But and the ball was where it needed to be based on the coverage. And, you know, you draft a guy like that. He gets two hands on it. You expect him to make that catch. Chase had drop issues of his own. Um, and, and Boyd, you know, it's it's really feast or famine with a lot of famine in there this year in terms of production. Um, maybe he's a guy, you know, I, I, I saw a tweet from Mike Petralia um, that Brian Callahan was talking about some of these other weapons or usage of other uh, other 
players on offense and he thought that that might be maybe a little bit more tight end heavy maybe a bit more tyler boyd maybe guys like chris evans and 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 so forth that get into the passing game a little bit as more attention is being commanded to chase um but i'm with you i think uh i I think i'm not over overall disappointed in those guys but i'm a little surprised the production hasn't been there and that contested catch aspect hasn't been there it's really just been a handful of games for T. Higgins where you wanted more. Like the Bears game, he had was 0 for 4 in contested catch situations. The Ravens game where he was being force-fed targets because he had a better matchup compared to Jamar Chase and he didn't really perform well. Last two weeks, like he's had 97 yards against the Jets, 78 against the Browns. And he only had, I think, four incompletions in total for those for those uh, two games combined. And unfortunately, he did have the drop there against the Browns. So he's trending in the right direction now, but you know, I guess compared to what we were crowning him in, in the offseason in, in training camp, it's just been a little bit under the radar. But, you know, it, it's not been all bad for Higgins and not, not all bad for Tyler Boyd. Honestly, like the offense in terms of just volume stats, like they're on pace to do pretty well. Joe Burrow is, should be in the MVP conversation when you just look at the traditional stats. It's just there, no position group on the offense side of the ball has been like it is, is immune to making major screw ups and attributing to the overall inconsistencies and the maddening inconsistencies like this offense this unit should be capable of doing so much more but it's not just been the offensive line it's been burrow's decision making it's been unfortunately higgins and and chase with with their mishaps every now and then and and then you can sprinkle in the offensive line in there there's not been really an area on offense that hasn't underperformed at some season at some point in the season and that has all attributed to being five and four that being said, and I'm sorry if I you said Trey Hopkins, and I don't know if you specifically designated him as that surprisingly negative. I apologize if I made you fish for another one there, John. But uh, that was a good one. It probably should have been mentioned before. So yeah. Okay. Um, what what kind of grades would you be giving out? I mean, I don't know if I don't know how deep we want to go with this, but I, I just quickly, I guess we were going to do a short one this week, and here we are, an hour in on a bye week. But where would you have? the the Bengals being graded in, in various aspects or kind of major aspects of their team at this point. So do we want to go like, uh, I guess like overall, overall coaching and maybe, I don't know, offense, defense, I don't know, all that kind of stuff. Honestly, I think like the coaching deserves a solid B, B minus. I, I think Zach Taylor and Luna room have done really good jobs this year. Frank, the Frank Pollock impact has definitely been noticeable, not just in the past blocking, uh, prominence in the middle of the season but also they're one of the best run blocking teams that has led to some really good games from joe mixon so i think coaching has been fine it's, it's, it deserves a b i think for both offense and defense you can kind of give it in that c plus area where it, it's obviously there's been high points but there's just room for so much more and maybe like a c plus for the defense means like they're really a c minus team but they're performing like a b plus team which kind of meets in the middle and for the offense they should be in the A range, but they're performing like a low C at, at times. And that's been one of the key components to why this team has been not as successful as they should be. So they kind of like fall around the same, you know, high C, low B area, but for different reasons, it's almost like the defense is overperforming and the offense is underperforming. But I honestly do think that it's not really because of the coaches. I think the schemes have been fine. I think the game plans have been fine. I think they're getting a lot out of some players. It's just, it, it hasn't been perfect, which is why it's not like an A for coaching. I, gosh, I'm trying to disagree with you there, but that is right around where I would have a lot of these things. You know, I think coaching would be BB minus. There are um, some issues where you go, what what are we, what are we doing here? But um, I think 
some of the times in which they are aggressive on fourth down and whatever have been um, have either worked out well or have warranted th- that aggressiveness. Um, I liked a lot of the play calls I saw, especially early last week. You know that that flea flicker wheel route to to T Higgins. I thought that was a great play, great design play. I liked the fact that they were getting Joe Mixon involved in a lot of different aspects to kind of grind through drives. A, a lot of times that was kind of the plan early, and use screens and all kinds of different things. So you know, I, I liked a, I like a lot of what I've seen for the most part. There have been a couple of areas where you go, what, what what are we doing here? And it correlates to the dry spells that we've seen. You know, the offense, I would I would probably go CC plus there because, you know, maybe we had a little unfair high expectations. But when you have a number one overall quarterback, you have a number five overall pick at wide receiver, another guy who was essentially a first round pick, a number 33 overall pick in Higgins. And you've got Tyler Boyd, one of the best slot receivers in the game. You kind of figure that points are plenty and yards are plenty, and they're going to score on almost every single drive. And that's not. And then a mix in, of course. You're, you're, you know, you're not really, you're not really seeing that, and you're not even seeing. You're seeing explosive plays, and you're seeing a lot of three and outs. So I think there needs to be, uh, you know, something in the middle there. The defense, I think, has overachieved in some facets, but again, uh, others that the lack of turnovers and translating these sacks into turnovers, I, I would put them probably right at a C as well. And I think now through nine weeks, they're uh, towards the bottom end of just overall DVOA, which everyone should take um, into account for. And everyone should notice they're pretty average in terms of overall defense and offensive EPA. It, it matches what the record is at five and four. Like I, I understand that, you know, the last two weeks have been disappointing, but from a macro perspective, from just an overarching view of this team, they are around where they probably should be, which matches a lot of the preseason expectations. It's just when you start five and two and you have dominant wins against the Steelers and Ravens, that changes a lot of perceptions. It makes you question what you really thought about this team. But more times than not, the game of football will reveal to you your answers in time when more games are played. Because unlike college football, the games matter here in the NFL and, and they will basically sort everything out as things kind of unload. So I, I guess for finalized grades, I'm going to go coaching with B offense with C plus defense with B minus. Okay. I, I will, uh, I will say B minus coaching. I will say a straight C just to differ from you a little bit, straight C on offense and uh, probably a C plus on defense overall so slight variation but uh i think we're, we're kind of speaking the same language well, sounds we a little... lot like my freshman year of college right there yeah exactly exactly there <laughs> you go uh went a little long but let's drop the mic and get out of here john what what kind of final thoughts do you have for us as we deal with the bye week this week hey man i know i just flamed college football there but number five we moved up after barely yeah, beating tulsa go. there's some celebrations all around um how was that? How was that experience down there? It had to be way fun. Oh, call, oh, game day, right? Yeah. Um, did not arrive at three a.m. to get into the mosh pit with all the signs. <laughs> arrived at nine a.m. But it was it was kind of like you know when you're at a concert and like like you kind of get there kind of late, so you're kind of in the back of where all like the of where all the crowd is, but you're still kind of immersed in the overall experience. It, it's not that big of an area on UC's campus where they had it. So I was a little surprised that they had it here, but it was full to the brim and it was an electric experience. And we just had a good time just chilling there, went out to a bar to watch the game, 
watch OSU almost lose and watch UC almost lose. And honestly, I, w- I was shocked that they didn't drop down to seven. But shout out to Purdue for really throwing a wrench into all the, wrench in the whole things. It, it's weird. Um, it's like after the selection show uh, or after the, the first ranking reveal last week that everyone is on your side, like, oh, UC should be higher. You know, the, this this rankings committee sucks. And then to be on the other side, like, yeah, maybe they're doing all right. You know, moving down Michigan State to seven under Michigan. It, the whole thing is just it's just a mess. But it's nice yeah. when you're on the other side of the mess. It is. It is. Uh, well, I'm glad you had a good time, man. I'm glad they won. I was I was seeing some things. I didn't get to watch the game, but I saw some things where I was, and I was like, oh, my gosh. They're, they're like People are like, this is unbelievable what's happening in Tulsa. I'm like, no, they're not losing that game. Come on. Come on. <laughs> this entire week in the buildup. But uh, thankfully, they, they hung on there. So, um, good. I'm glad to see that they are getting a little bit more positive run this week. Um, I, I You know, one of the things that I just – it probably warrants an episode of its own really, but a lot of talk about officiating in the NFL refereeing in the NFL. And what we saw Monday night was puzzling. Um, Obviously when you go back to the call against the Bengals and the jets, um, that call to end essentially end the game for the Bengals was maddening. Um, I, I don't like to be the the guy that says, oh, the officiating costs the game and all that kind of stuff, because that's not really ever the case. I mean, there are a lot of plays you just don't make and, you know, you can be old, old school and cliche and all that. But there seems to be more and more referee influence this year, whether it's because of the taunting rule that they are flexing on there and and obviously the the situation in the bears game was i mean mean, tony carrenti bumped into a player like backed into a a bears player and then drew the offensive foul yeah 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 i mean really and i i just and it just seems that the nfl and their officiating accounts and their league accounts are just saying there's no mistake here there's no mistake here we agree with the call this call is legal there was another call in the Steelers game where Minka Fitzpatrick hits Justin Fields, like in the open field. Fields is running. He kind of lowers his head a little bit, but I mean, he gets ear hold essentially by, by Fitzpatrick. No call. It was deemed a legal call. And then you go back to the Mike Hilton play and you go, whoa, whoa, whoa. where's the consistency here? And then of course you have Mike Tomlin has the audacity to say, well, I, you know, I really like what they're doing with the taunting call. And of course he does because these types of calls seem to always go the Pittsburgh Steelers way it would seem so I, I I guess it's just a little bit of a venting John that the officiating this year I guess maybe it means more to me because the Bengals are actually in the playoff picture at this point in time and not waiting on it on a high draft pick it just seems that there is a lot of referee influence this year more so maybe in, in a couple of years past yeah I'll take the L on this one I didn't think that Despite it being a point of emphasis, I didn't think that it would actually impact games when it was down to, down to crunch time. But we have seen a couple instances of that. It's just the problem is, like you said, there's no consistency. It's just entirely arbitrary. It's based off of what the ref feels at that time, if he deems it to be taunting or if he deems it to be a legal contact. And I think for the most part, they get those helmet hits right. But I think the general consensus is we don't want to see refs deciding games based off of things that we cannot comfortably say from our couches. That is a taunt like that deserves to be a flag. I I really do wonder where we, where we would be 
if Antoine Winfield doesn't throw up a peace sign to Tyree Kill in the Super Bowl to be on the biggest stage like that seemed to be what sparked all of this. And I know I know that just in the first year, it is a point of emphasis and that these things tend to just kind of like dwindle down. But the fact that it's now coincidentally paired with a time where, you know, Vegas is more involved in the NFL and they have official betting partners and you have these things kind of going down, coinciding with it. It does make you think that there is something a little bit shady going on. But like, again, I I, I understand that, like, it's a rule and that, like, you have to do your best to follow it. But it's also really hard to take that emotion aspect out of the game. And it's really hard to justify what they're doing right now because these refs have complete power over it. And they know they have power and leverage because the last time that the NFL tried to replace them, those replacements lasted three weeks and they brought them back immediately and they gave everything the the refs wanted. The refs know that they have complete leverage and and control over over the situation. And they have people with power basically telling them, make these these controversial calls by your standards because we don't like the way the NFL is trending because we're old and white. I'm I'm trying not to use the tinfoil hat deal where you say, hey, you know, they've got money on this game. They've got, you know, the, the refs are, they're in, they're in the pocket here. That's why they're influencing this game. I'm not going, who was that? Who was that basketball referee years ago that got pegged and did jail oh. or a Donahue or Donahoe? Or yeah. yeah. Um, at any rate, I'm not, I'm not going down that road until that is explicitly proven. But what I'm, what I am saying is when, there are, and I think the word power that you said is, is a really, and, the, and what the officials have, that is a really, that's the key thing here. And there are two of the biggest penalties right now in the league are pass interference and taunting. And a lot of that is is subjective and opinion-based on an official. And what, you know, pass interference is a bit more objectively based because there are, you know, your grab jersey, you see it, but I mean, that's what do you see and and how much are you, quote unquote, letting them play in, in things, instances of that nature. And then, of course, the taunting thing and brand new rule that they're cracking down on. And, and those are two subjective types of penalties that are being called. And, the, you know, those are things that change trajectories of games for sure. And, and we're seeing that and none more obvious, really, than than the latest example on Monday night between the Bears and the Steelers. It's already tough enough to be a referee. I do sympathize with some of them despite the pay that they get. But like, I, I don't I know that they're the ones making the call, but they didn't necessarily ask for this added responsibility. This this goes entirely on like the subcommittee that a lot of NFL coaches are on. I think Mike Tomlin is a part of it. So no wonder he didn't bad mouth the taunting calls. Right. Like, right. That went against the Bears. I think Kevin Stefanski is also on that committee. Um, Sean McVay. But I think the head of it is like the owner of the Giants and like his son, his name is Wellington, which matches perfectly with just the crudeness and the, the lameness of this whole thing. It it just it, it just rubs everyone the wrong way because no one no one is asking for this and no one is offended by people just celebrating in, in people's faces. And it's, it's like the refs already have a tough enough thing to to make some of these calls and unfortunately sway some of these games. But adding on something completely arbitrary like this that you can't really regulate it, it can't bode well for the future of the league. It can't. But anyway, vent rant over until the next week when we'll see something egregious. But I don't know. John, uh, have a good week, bud. Enjoy the, the bye week and, and maybe a little time away from the typing. Yeah, I will, man. It'll be a nice, nice time off. And we'll be ready for the last eight weeks of the season. That's right. And we'll be we'll be bringing you all kinds of different things on this show. And you can get it, as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, on your favorite audio streamer by subscribing to the Cincy Jungle Podcast channel. And that is 
findable on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, any of the major ones were there. And of course, our YouTube channel has all kinds of different stuff, including our weekly show between John and myself. Have a good week, John. Have a good week, everybody. We will be back with more Bengals talk on this channel. Take it easy. Enjoy the bye week and we'll talk to you soon.